This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. We've got another bonus episode today, and here to tell us about it is our producer, Josh Christensen. Hey, Josh. Hey, Kate. So what are we talking about today? Remember a few weeks ago when we did our episode on the pay gap? I know maybe there's so much that happens week over week. Maybe you've forgotten about it. <laughs> I, I do I do remember that. And it's really interesting. I have not forgotten. It's, it's really interesting that you should mention it because today, as we are recording this, it is March 24th, which is equal pay day in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the symbolic day into the year that women must work for free in order to catch up with men's pay. But I should say that is only for white women. For black women, for example, it's uh, usually sometime in August. For Latinx women, it's, I believe, October, you know, which which really kind of gives you a sense. And we actually we covered that in that episode. But suffice to say that the gender pay gap is a really complex topic with a really long history. Right. And speaking of that history, in the intro to that episode, as you were going through the history of pay inequity, you mentioned how women entered the workforce in mass during World War II. But after the war was over, they were basically booted out. Yeah. And that's really interesting. So women have been getting paid less than men since basically women have started working for pay. But in World War II, women were encouraged to take over the jobs that were they were previously told they couldn't do so that the men could fight in the war. And they were actually paid the same or similar wages that men had received, but not out of fairness. It was so that those jobs and that pay would be waiting for men when they returned. Basically, women were told that they were capable and valued, but only for a limited time. So we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this particular part of that history and expand on it. So we had Pavithra Mohan, reporter at Fast Company, who listeners will remember from a bunch of episodes over the past few years, dive into this topic. And here's what she found. Over the last year, countless headlines have framed the economic fallout from the pandemic as the first female recession. While overall job losses between men and women now seem relatively comparable, the pandemic has uniquely affected many working women, and especially working mothers. Back in December of 2019, before COVID-19 started to affect daily life in the U.S., the share of women on payrolls had actually outpaced the share of men. But since the start of the pandemic, millions of women have lost their jobs or been pushed out of the labor force. Industries that employ more women were hit particularly hard during the pandemic, industries like food service and hospitality. Women are more likely to hold low-wage jobs, and that is even more the case for Black and Latinx women, which left many of them vulnerable to the virus and at the mercy of a flailing economy. On top of all this, some working mothers left their jobs to care for their children because schools were closed and affordable childcare wasn't accessible. Women juggling remote work and caregiving responsibilities reportedly cut back on their working hours by four to five times more than men. But this isn't the first time women have been knocked out of the workforce. At the turn of the century, the majority of women didn't work outside of the house. Only about 20% of women in 1900 had, quote, gainful occupations, according to the census. 
Those who did work outside of the home were typically Black women, more than 40% of whom were employed at the time, or they were unmarried. But in the decades leading up to the Great Depression, and against the backdrop of the women's suffrage movement, more and more women entered the workforce. And by 1930, nearly half of single women and almost 12% of married women were working. When millions of men lost their jobs after the stock market crash of 1929, many women started working to help support their families. In fact, the number of working women jumped from about 10.5 million in 1930 to 13 million in 1940. That's in large part because the jobs that were available were perceived as women's work, jobs like teaching, which weren't nearly as affected by the stock market. Those jobs also paid less as a result. Black women who had been working for more than 50 years found it especially difficult to find work that paid a reasonable wage. Men and women simply weren't seeking out the same jobs. But it wasn't long before women, and even people of color, were scapegoated for taking work away from them. In her recent book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, author Ijeoma Oluo wrote, quote, Men grew angry, scared, and desperate as the idea took hold that women workers were, if not the primary cause of the Great Depression, at least exacerbating the problem. This sentiment was mostly held by white men, Oluo says, since it was far more common for Black women to work, even under normal circumstances. Married women, in particular, were vilified for being employed during the Great Depression, since the assumption at the time was that they were already provided for by a spouse. In fact, many businesses outright banned married women from working. And in 1932, even the federal government intervened, decreeing that only one spouse could work a government job at any given time. By 1940, 26 states also limited the employment of married women in government jobs. The federal bill was repealed just five years later, but by then, countless women had already given up their jobs. Then America entered World War II. When more than 16 million men left to serve in the war, companies had no choice but to recruit women and people of color to fill vacancies in factories and across other jobs. That included courting married white women, who employers thought could be easily dismissed from their positions once the war was over. During the war, six and a half million women joined the workforce, which meant almost 25% of married women were working outside of their homes. They were finally doing the same work as men, and some were even paid equally for it, though that was largely a ploy to ensure men would be paid at the same rates when they returned from war. Working conditions for women also improved because so many of them had to balance childcare responsibilities with their jobs. This led to the introduction of the Lanham Act, which put federal and state funds toward childcare centers that served women who were aiding in the war efforts. But as the war came to an end, the government focused on how to transition men back into the workforce and ensure there were enough jobs for them. And even though many women wanted to keep working, millions were laid off while others were shifted into pink collar or low-skilled jobs that were deemed more appropriate for them. By 1946, the childcare funding provided through the Lanham Act was also terminated, despite the protests of working women and organized demonstrations in New York City. The men who didn't get plum jobs were taken care of with the GI Bill, which promised loans, unemployment insurance, tuition assistance, and more, and helped expand the white middle class. Black veterans were entitled to the same benefits, but they had far more trouble accessing them due to discrimination, and only a small fraction of women benefited from the GI Bill. Many people believe that World War II laid the groundwork for the women's liberation movement that followed in decades to come, between the symbolism of Rosie the Riveter and the economic freedoms afforded to working women. 
And it's true that women's participation in the labor force steadily increased starting in the 1950s, hitting a peak of 60% in 1999. In the past year, however, that figure has slipped to 57%, but women's labor force participation was already slowing prior to the pandemic. After all, the very challenges that women faced during and after the war, a lack of childcare support and low-wage jobs with poor working conditions and endemic sexual harassment, still threaten their standing in the workforce more than 70 years later. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you liked this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen.